The Brave Dutch, a true story episodic brought to you by The Current LLC and adapted and produced by Reese Lau Jr. And I wanted to find out what the noise is all about. Do you really think that swing is here to stay? Previously on The Brave Dutch. I had only moved to the new spot uh, briefly when he returned with a young boy. He looked to be about 14 at a distance. They walked straight to the spot where the bike lay and stood there talking and looking about in the woods, but not calling. I made up my mind to go back. On April 29th, 1944, my grandfather was shot down over occupied Holland during World War II. He spent 11 months in hiding before he made it back to Allied territory. If not for the sacrifices of the Dutch people, none of my family would even exist. To quote my grandfather, some debts because of size can never be paid in full, and my indebtedness to the Dutch people is great. In Paris, France, on February 21st, 1945, after several days of debriefing, John Lau Jr., my grandfather, sat down to tell a story. It was his attempt to partially repay this enormous debt. The following is his story, in his words. Episode 3. I wish I were a soldier. As I walked toward them, I deliberately stepped on some branches so they would hear me coming before I got too close. They turned to face me when they heard this noise, and when I was within speaking distance, it was the young boy that spoke first. We were afraid that you had left, he said, and, and he, then he and I shook hands. And I answered, no, I was just walking around the woods to see how large these woods are. The young boy uh, seemed to speak English well, and he had a large bundle under his arm. He said, shall we sit? And when we were seated, he asked, are you hungry? I have sandwiches. I had had only one egg this day, and the walk-in had sharpened my appetite. I answered, yes, I am a bit. And he pulled a small sandwich box from inside his overcoat. And yes, there were raw bacon sandwiches and sandwiches of cheese. And I thought that since I was hungry, I would have one of the bacon ones first. They might taste better that way. We talked as I ate, and he would interpret each answer for the forester. The conversation was just friendly talk, and so I was at ease for the time. When I'd finished eating, I stopped talking a minute or so and started thinking. Both seemed to see that I was not exactly comfortable, and they did not speak. I decided to come right out in the open with my questions and clear up a few things. Just to start the conversation up again I asked my young friend how old he was and why he learned his English so well and he said that he was 16 almost 17 and he had learned to speak English in public schools <clears throat> he said that he had had to leave school three years before because he was Jewish he had been studying English while he was in hiding hiding from the Germans for three years hmm I next asked, 
why a friend here wore the particular green hat and coat that he did, that I'd seen it on uh, another man at a distance. And he told me that uh, he was a keeper of the woods and that before the war, all these foresters wore the same green corduroy dress. But now some of them were having to wear only parts of these green suits because the worn-out garments could not be replaced. He had to stop as he as he went on and, and translate for our friend. Um, I then told him of my experiences of the night before, and I asked how I was to know if I could trust them. He translated uh, my question to the older man, and he gave an answer, and the translation came back like this. He said that, that there is no way that either of us can be sure of the other. He said that they were members of the underground movement and could help me and would soon as, um, and, they, and they would as soon as they asked me, as they had asked me some questions. And I asked why these questions were necessary and was told that the Germans had at times planted English-speaking Germans about, uh, about the area posing as allied airmen. And in this way, they had gotten in and found out much about the underground army. These questions were necessary to at least half prove my identity. I told him that if he wished to ask questions about my homeland, then I would answer these. But if it was if his questions were of a military character, that I would I would simply have to refuse to answer, even if it meant refusing his help. And he gave a translation to the older man, and this seemed quite agreeable with them. The questions that they asked were not important and honestly any German if he had been properly briefed could have answered any of them however it seemed to satisfy my friends I began to see the idea Uh, it was then that I realized it was quite possible that the English speaker the night before could have been doing the same thing but still his type of questioning was what I hadn't liked the two talked a bit, and then the young Jewish lad, he turned to me and asked, Do you know Lieutenant Belmore? I replied, Do I know him? Why, he's my pilot. How do you know him? And then he said, We found him too, and he is close by here in these woods. We shall take you to him. I knew that by this they were sold that I was, uh, that I was what I claimed to be. And still, I had not given any information that would be of any value had it fallen into the wrong hands. We got up, and they wanted to shake hands again, and I sure felt no objections to this. The young boy handed me the bundle and said for me to put these on, and I opened the bundle and found a pair of blue blue coveralls. I took off my flying suit, wrapped it up in the paper, and uh, put on the coveralls. I've seen two people that were glad to see each other before, but when when Mo and I got together, well, I guess our friends thought we were nuts. He was only about a mile from where the forester had set me down to wait uh, while he went after the Jewish lad, uh, who at the time had been talking to Bill. Now we all four sat down, and the forester asked the boy in Dutch to ask us what our plans were. I talked with Bill, and he had the same idea as I. We told him that we would like to try to make it to Spain and that we would need to get civilian clothes, and we asked if it were possible to get false papers. 
the foster and the boy talked in Dutch. And then the boy uh, said that it was possible to get both, that we would have to go into town that night and to a home where we could stay a few days until the false papers could be prepared. And he said that they would be able, with the help of others, to put us on a train that, that we could ride in reasonable safety with false papers to the Belgian border. And there they would arrange for us to be uh, turned over to the Belgium underground, who in turn would ship us through Belgium to the French FFI, who would see us over the Pyrenees Mountains into Spain. <laughs> Boy, did, did this all sound good to us. We had never in our wildest dreams visualized anything so nice. The whole show was to be put on by the underground, and all we had to do was use, a, use our heads a bit, have an have a average run of luck, and in three or four weeks we would be in Spain. The Forrester and the Jewish lad had just made contact with Bill about 30 minutes before they found me. He'd been hiding on a farm, and the farmer knew this Forrester to be a member of the underground, and he had gone to the Forrester to see if he would come talk with Bill. The Jewish lad's work was mainly that of interpreter, and he had to be very careful not to be seen too much because he was found out by the Germans just to, just to be Jewish. He knew that he knew what his fate would be. He told us that they would leave now, and then they would go make arrangements for someone to come for us this night. He said they would come just at dusk, and that they would bring civilian clothes. I asked him his name, but he refused to give it to me, saying that it was better that Bill and I knew no names or addresses of the people that helped us. This way, if we were ever caught, no matter what might happen, we could not betray the underground. He said it was a practice of the underground not to tell anyone anything unless it was necessary for him to know. This applied particularly among the members of the organization. He said, the fewer ears that hear things, the fewer tongues can tell things. They left, and uh, for the first time, Bill and I were able to really talk things over. Bill had a bottle of cold tea that we drank as we talked. Mm. We, we, we talked first about the other members of the crew and wondered where they were and if they had been caught. Bill was the last man to jump, and uh, everyone had gotten out okay, as there was no reason why they shouldn't. And now we turn the conversation back to what we should do next. I asked Bill if he trusted this boy and Forrester, and he said yes. He thought he did. But he agreed that under no circumstances should we give out anything that in the wrong hands would help the wrong people. We decided that we would, if, if, if such be the right word, gamble our, our own future by going with them and doing as they said do because we could see clearly that we were going we to need help to escape. So far they had given us no real reason that would give us cause to be suspicious we never saw the forester again, but about seven that evening, the Jewish lad came back with his bike. A man and a girl, uh, each on bikes. He had a civilian suit for each of us and the saddlebags on the carriage of his bike, and he said that we must get into these as quick as we could, and we did. While Bill and I dressed, he gave us instructions. He said a man and a girl, another man and a girl, were waiting for us at the path, and he would go with us to them, and then... I would take his bike, and Bill was to take the man's bike, and the man and the girl would go on the girl's bike. 
and that we should ride about 30 yards behind and if that if they were stopped by anyone we would turn about and come back here to these woods I asked if if he were going with us and he said no Bill asked if he would come to see us at this house where we were going, and he said no, that he, he did not know where we, where we were going, and it was better that he didn't. He pointed out that in this way, if he were ever captured, he could not betray us, no matter what they did to him. Slowly, slowly I was beginning to see, the, see part of the setup and how the underground functioned. I asked if we would see him again before we went on our way. And he said it might be possible that he would ride the train with us to the Belgian border, but more than likely someone else would go as he did not go about in crowded places as he was always in danger of being detected as a Jew. Bill and I both shook hands with him and told him goodbye and we thanked him for helping us. He said we owed him no thanks, that he was just doing his duty. As we walked from the woods, I shall never forget a statement he made. I wish I were a soldier. <laughs> Bill assured him that he was a soldier and that the underground soldier was just as much a soldier than those that wore a uniform. And, he, and then he said, but I would like to be a real soldier. And I never forgot this because... As my knowledge of the functions of the underground increased and I learned of the dangers in being a member of such movement, I would always turn my thoughts to this modest Jewish lad and think, well, brother, if you are not a real soldier, then there just isn't any such thing. As we neared the edge of the woods and, and the path where the man and girl waited, he said for us not to speak to each other or, or, or to them just now. And while we were riding, that we must not speak either. Bill walked up to the man and took his bike. And at once the man took the girl on the other bike and started down the path. We followed and I turned uh, <clears throat> before we had gone too far. And I waved goodbye to our Jewish friend. He never saw us again, but once he, once he, he did ride by the, past the house where Bill and I stayed, and we saw him on his bike through the window. All the bikes in Holland have a, have a luggage carrier over the back wheel, and this is where the girl rode. There's nothing unusual in Holland to see a man biking down the street with his wife riding this rack behind. Sometimes, too, he would have a young child in a sort of basket-like deal over the front wheel. It was made so the child could put both legs through the holes and sit just as if he were in the, in the seat part of a, a kid's high chair. Bikes of Holland are somewhat taller than ours, and the pedals have longer shanks, uh, and, the, and they have larger sprockets, and this gives them speed at ease over the level, their level countryside. And the bike serves as their main mode of transportation. It is very practical in that small country, and... While before the war there were many cars and buses, I still believe it was even then a very popular means of transportation for both the young and old. Um, we were only about five miles outside of the town of Appledorn, and the ride did not take us long. <laughs> one, one thing funny, um, well, it wasn't so funny at the time, 
Just as we were, we came to the edge of the town, we saw two German soldiers walking along with a rifle slung on the backs. And we were not riding the street, but on the cement bike path that ran alongside. And this is where the Germans were walking. First in our possession was the man and the girl, and I, I was second. And then Bill came third. When, when you are out trying to fool your enemy like this, you sometimes turn molehills into mountains. And that is just what I did. I wasn't frightened at seeing the German soldiers, but the molehill that I made out of the mountain was this, whether the Dutch drove and rode bikes on the right side of the road or the left. <laughs> For some full reason, I felt that if I chose the wrong side of the path, that these two soldiers would suspect something. <sighs> Five minutes later, I saw how completely foolish it was to give it a second thought. Anyway, at the moment, it seemed important. However, I, I knew that the answer would come by just just going past on the same side as I guides. It seemed obvious that the soldiers were just walking and they had no intention of stopping us. For some reason, the man and the girl up front headed for the left side of the path and ju then just before they were reaching the jerrys, they changed over to the right. And I was coming along at a fast clip and I changed over to follow, but in the change over, I hit a large stone in the center of the path. I lost my balance a bit. And right between the Germans, I went. And one, one got knocked out of the way, but the other only got halfway over. So he was knocked a winded. Flat, flat on his back he lay. <laughs> I, I didn't fall completely, and I continued riding as he let out what sounded to me as very ungentlemanly shouts. Bill, Bill rode through right on my heels with no mishaps, and everything turned out okay. But I should always wonder what would what would have happened had I centered that German a little more squarely and, and wound up on top of him. This house that we went to was just on the outskirts of town, and it so happened it was on the uh, same side as as the, as we went in on into town on. We didn't see many people other than those two German soldiers either. We just rode through the front gate and to the rear of the house. <laughs> little that we suspect when we went into the back door of this house that we would remain inside for five months. One night when it was very dark, I walked around the backyard for about 15 minutes and I looked at the stars. But if my memory serves right, Bill never set his foot out the door in these five, in these five months. As I say, we were to stay in this house for five months. So I want to tell you something about the people that live there. This man and girl that had been our guides were two of the leaders of the part of the local underground. In a town such as Appledorn, which had a peacetime population of around 60,000 people, there was always more than one local underground organization. Each of the, these organizations were made up of uh, from five to maybe 35 members, seldom more than 35 and usually only about eight. We had been living with these people for some time before we learned that even their surnames, but with your permission, I'll give the names, I'll give you the names now for the sake of the story. This man, our God, uh, was Art, and the girl we called Mary. <laughs> some of the <laughs> Dutch names were very difficult for Bill and me to pronounce at first, and in cases such as Mary's, where the individual spoke English, we would use the English names that were the equal of the Dutch names. Art was married. He was 23 years old, and he was the oldest of three sons. He was about average build, 
weighed about around 145 pounds and had long blonde straight hair that was always in his eyes. There wasn't anything that would stop him from looking like the average man in the street in the States. One thing that can be said with emphasis about art is he was careful. He never took undue chances and he played the game on the safe side. This paid large dividends for both art and us all before all the chips were down. Mary didn't live here, but she was a frequent visitor and just like one of the family. She wasn't a fancy girl with a lot of trimmings. Her hair was cut short, and she wore the same mannish-tailored clothes only. She was about the same age as Art, uh, but she seemed to have filled her years with more experience. She worked night and day for the underground, and also taught school to keep up a front. If there was ever a person that lived their life for others, Mary did. She was later captured by the German Gestapo for doing underground work and was sent to Germany to a concentration camp. Whether she's alive today, I do not know. But somehow somehow I feel that she isn't. Not many that are taken to Germany for doing underground work ever come out or ever will come out alive. Art's mother, and we all called her mother, was confined to the bed at the time. She's about 50, and at first she didn't like the idea of us living with them. She talked a lot and was in the know about everything. Uh, She was more or less, and mainly more, the final decider on most everything. The father, Abe. He was truly one fine person. He was about 60 and had had to give up his business several years back because of his bad health. (laughs) He was as bald as a peel grape. And above all, he had the number one asset a person can have, a keen sense of humor. He was tops. He could just walk into the room and and show a twinkle in his eye, and our morale would go sky high. At times, this meant a lot to us and helped to pull us through some of our homesick uh, some of our most homesick moods Art's wife Mac well Mac was very easy on the eye so was a twin sister but Mac's role in the game was not that of sitting about making herself attractive she was the first up in the mornings and the last to get to bed at night her day was filled with hard work housework and not to be and not that on a, a fancy dainty scale she wore like a dog for all of us and we shall never forget it either one of the sons was living there too uh, this was yeah uh, or in english uh, would be jack he was an intellectual sort and he spoke reasonably good english his age i think was 22 uh, the other son who was the youngest was Yoop, and that I think means Jim, but he was living on a, on a farm at the time, so I'll, I'll tell about him later. The only other person in the house was a very unusual lady called Ma Frau. She was about 60. Well, for all I knew, she could have she been 50 or 90. And she lived in the Dutch EE for some years. 
She had traveled a good bit, spoke Dutch perfectly, which many of the Dutch do not do. Spoke English, French, German, and Malaysian. She was a very steady person and <laughs> hated the Germans with a fiery anger. She had two rooms on the second floor of the house, and we did not see her often. So, now you know a few facts about some of the finest people in the entire world. There's a lot more I want you to know about these people, and there are more people, too. We might say that this house is where we begin to come into contact with some of the members of the Dutch Underground organizations. Bill and I stood our bikes against the side of the house and we were shown into the dining room where Art's mother was laying on some kind of day bed. We shook hands with her. Art's wife, Mac. Art's father and brother, Yop. <laughs> and then we remembered we had never shaken hands with Art and Mary. So we did that too. In short, we had a handshaking good time. The Brave Dutch was written by John Lau Jr. and produced by The Current LLC. Special thanks to Jackie, Reese, Lucy, Tinica, and most of all, Joe. There'd be no war today if mothers all would say, I didn't raise my voice. The opening song is courtesy of the indelible Swing Republic. Please stay tuned for episode four. What victory can hear a mother's heart when she looks at her glided home?